Welcome to Brennan Avat. Uh, today we are joined by Raja Halwani, who's a professor uh, at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, which is one of the top rated um, um, art schools in the States. And uh, we're going to be talking about the philosophy of love. Uh, Raja, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Sure. Uh, thank you both for having me. So the thought experiment that I'm going to give is uh, actually um, taken from a short story by the American short story writer, Raymond Carver. And it's called, uh, the short story is called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. I'm only going to read about a page long of the, the short story and then maybe raise what questions the, the thought experiment raises. So the story begins as follows. My friend Mel McGuinness was talking. Mel McGuinness is a cardiologist and sometimes that gives him the right. The four of us were sitting around his kitchen table drinking gin. Sunlight filled the kitchen from the big window behind the sink. There were Mel and me and his second wife, Teresa, Terry as we called her, and my wife, Laura. We lived in Albuquerque then, but we were all from somewhere else. There was an ice bucket on the table. The gin and the tonic water kept going around and we somehow got on the subject of love. Mel thought real love was nothing less than spiritual love. He said he'd spent five years in a seminary before quitting to go to medical school. He said he still looked back on those years in the seminary as the most important years in his life. Terry said, that, said the man she lived with before she lived with Mel loved her so much he tried to kill her. Then Terry said, he beat me up one night. He dragged me around the living room by my ankles. He kept saying, I love you. I love you, you bitch. He went on dragging me around the living room. My head kept knocking on things. Teddy looked around the table. What do you do with love like that? She was a bone thin woman with a pretty face, dark eyes and brown hair that hung down her back. She liked necklaces made of turquoise and long pendant earrings. My God, don't be silly. That's not love, and you know it, Mel said. I don't know what you'd call it, but I sure know you wouldn't call it love. Say what you want to, but I know it was, Terry said. It may sound crazy to you, but it's true just the same. People are different, Mel. Sure, sometimes he may have acted crazy. Okay, but he loved me. In his own way, maybe, but he loved me. There was love there, Mel. Don't say there wasn't. The thought experiment is that you often have couples who are who have been together for a long time, for years, who both claim that they are in love with each other, um, yet one of them acts in ways towards the other that can be quite brutal. And the example from Raymond Carver is a little bit, um, maybe it's not extreme statistically, but it's a little bit extreme in terms of the kind of examples that you can raise, because it's an example where he actually beat up Terry. And he, not only did he beat her up, but he was dragging her around the floor, as she said, and her head was knocking, was hitting things, tables, chairs, whatever. Um, and apparently later on after the story, when she left him, um, he ended up killing himself. He bungled it. He shot himself in the head, but he didn't quite succeed in the mouth, but he didn't quite succeed. He had to be hospitalized. And then he died later. And apparently he tried to kill himself because she had left him. So on the one hand, we have a situation in which a, um, a member of the couple um, the, the story goes that it's usually males on, on men on women, but we also know from the gay community that there are quite a number of stories of abusive love relationships. There are a lot of statistics also that show that when men and women fight in couples, women can be as not just verbally aggressive, but also physically aggressive, not in the sense that they hit the guy, but they throw stuff at the guy also, right? But then if you try to suggest to the couples 
that, well, maybe you don't love each other or maybe the abuser doesn't love you, you might get a lot of resistance out of this. So we have two contrasting things. On the one hand, we have the testimony of the people in the love relationship, right? And what they feel towards each other, the time they have clocked up together. But on the other hand, we seem to witness often a lack of concern, um, an important concern from one side or both sides to the other side. And if you believe that an important dimension of love is being concerned about the well-being and the happiness of your beloved, that raises questions about whether this is actually love or it is not love, basically. And so I'm going to stop here, but you can generate a lot of examples where, for example, consider men who basically say to their wives, your place is in the home. Uh, I want you to be here raising the children, blah, blah, blah. The wife might accept because she shares the same worldview, but we also know that she is talented, that she has a lot of talents that she could cultivate, but that her spouse would not let her, and all in the name of love. So he's, in a way, acting against her own well-being. So it raises the same, the same kind of question. Is love like being in pain? So if I say that I'm, I'm in pain, and I'm a subjectivist about pain, um, if we take a subjectivist account, it seems like I cannot be wrong that, that I'm in pain. So if I say that I feel pain, if I believe that, it seems like you have to trust me, right? I can't be wrong. Right. If someone says they are in love, can they be wrong? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating question. And clearly, I think the thought experiment rides a lot on that in the sense that we do not want to impugn people's testimony when they say they're in love. Now, of course, there are important disanalogies between being in pain and being in love. And I, I, I think there are cases when people are wrong about when, when they are in pain. You know, I think my mom used to say she was in pain all the time and she was faking it, although that's not quite true. I mean, but people can, can be wrong. But the disanalogy, that was kind of a joke, but the disanalogy between being in pain and being in love is that pain is some, well, pain can be a sensation, a physical sensation. So if you actually feel pain in your left arm, for example, or in your chest, uh, we give you the authority to declare, you know, that you are actually in pain. Um, but sometimes when pain is psychological, uh, we often, we not often, but we do sometimes argue with the person who claims that I am, that I am in pain. So for example, um, so for example, if I, well, I don't know, this is tricky, but there, there could be cases in which one is perhaps overrating the, the, kind of, the kind of psychological pain that they are going through. We, we might say to the person, you're overdoing it, snap out of it, to quote share from that famous line from the movie. You know, um, Of course, those cases don't quite come to your point, Jason, because your point isn't about whether the person needs to snap out of the pain that they're feeling. Your point is about the, very, the, the truth about whether they are feeling that pain or not, right? And I think it is here where the, this analogy with love comes, becomes very important because we, do, because we don't know quite what love is. So we, a lot of philosophers, for example, would contest the fact that love is similar to pain and pleasure, where we want to give the person the ultimate authority about whether they are experiencing it, because love is not a physical sensation, right? Um, and also philosophers have contested the idea that love is a regular emotion. So many of them want to say it's not like, it's not an emotion like, like, like the other emotions. My tendency to answer your question is that there are certain cases and there are certain cases that might differ from each other. So for example, 
consider a case in which um, you have someone who has been with their partner for two or three years, five years, you know, just give them enough time to be able to have, you know, things are going smoothly with them. Let's not take a case that is in which, you know, uh, they're happy for, they seem to be happy. They enjoy traveling with each other. They enjoy having dinner with each other, blah, blah, blah. And the person says, look, I love my spouse. You know, that kind of case I think has more uh, prima facie truth to it when we hear the person utter it as, to, as opposed to, for example, a case in which someone who's young, say 19 years old, 20 years old, um, goes out on a date or two with someone that, that, that they have just met, or even better yet, has a crush, say, on a superstar like Justin Bieber, right? And goes around being unable to eat. There's a famous Simpsons episode when Lisa has a crush on someone and she just can't eat, she can't sleep because she's, a, Corey, I think his name was Corey, and she kept dialing the number, blah, blah. So somebody like Lisa, or maybe older, who says, I'm in love with Corey, we have more room for give and take where we want to say to the person, well, maybe you're, you're wrong about that. Maybe you're not. Maybe this is just infatuation or a fading crush or something like that. So kind of like the Romeo and Juliet conception of love where you've just met someone within 72 hours, you're ready to kill yourself for them. Uh, you would start when they say that their love is the deepest there could ever be, you would start to be a bit skeptical. Right, right. And I'm one of those philosophers. I don't, I mean, I'm one of those philosophers who likes to separate pretty sharply actually, between two types of love, which is what I call uh, passionate love. I call it RL1, it's a very bland name in, in the book. You know, I distinguish it from more settled kinds of love, which I call RL2. <laughs> and I really, and I think that they're two very different phenomena. And I think in RL1, what happens is that sexual desire is often at the, at the forefront, basically. And a lot of the language of love in cases like that are really the language of sexual desire, speaking, right? And I don't know why, but because, because phenomenologically, sexual desire can make you want to be with that person, to touch that person, to crave that person, that can easily be taken to be for love, basically. Um, maybe for cultural reasons, we're not allowed to say that I just sexually desire that person and I really want to be with them just because I lust after them, but it's not really love. Maybe we are not encouraged to say things like that. That makes people more and more say that they love that person. Uh, but I definitely think in cases like that, there is more room for error than there are in, in other types of cases. And just what makes things more confusing is that we have those different categories, different concepts that are like satellites of the concept of love, but we don't know how the hell to distinguish them. I mean, we have people who speak of infatuation, right? And when you hear somebody say, oh, that's just an infatuation, that's not the term of praise. And when you say to somebody he's infatuated, it's, you're brushing off what they're actually feeling, right? So sometimes you get the sense that infatuation is like mistaken love, right? And then you have the concept of having a crush on someone, which might be, I don't know, early stages of passionate love. Maybe it's an infatuation. So it's just confusing. So in your book, The Philosophy of Love, Sex and Marriage, you yeah. detail a sort of list of what you call uh, generally necessary terms. And you say the one that's, that has to be there is this regard for the beloved. But the others you think tend to be there, but don't have to be. And so you think about exclusivity um, or about um, a sort of sexual desire. Um, what are the other things that are on that list and, and why are they on that list? 
So some other things that might be generally necessary. So just before I start, generally necessary is a term that I borrow from the philosopher W. Newton Smith, basically. He came up with the idea of generally necessary features. And the idea behind those features is that um, a G necessary feature is a feature or a property that something has almost always, but not exception, but, but not without exception. And when, when, the fee, when the phenomenon in question does not have that, that requires special explanation. So for example, if you have two people who have just met each other, they've been together for two months, for instance, three months, and they claim to be passionately in love with each other, yet one of them says, but I feel no sexual desire whatsoever for that person, right? That's incredibly odd. So according to W. Newton Smith, that would require special explanation. And you could come up with a special explanation. I mean, perhaps that person is asexual, basically, right? Um, so, so that's basically what G-necessary features are. So I'm, I'm going to list some of the features, which is, you know, um, exclusiv exclusivity, um, constancy, basically, uniqueness, which has to do with the object of love, finding the object of love unique. Um, I'm not saying that these are G-necessary. I'm just listing those features and we can discuss some of them, which of them are G-necessary or not. Um, irreplaceability, that the other person you love cannot be replaced, basically. Um, is, is desire for union with someone. Um, robust concern for the beloved. Um, sexual desire for the beloved. Sexual activity. Um, physical intimacy, which I think is very important to love, and I can say more about that a little bit. Um, emotional and mental intimacy. Um, longing and pain at the loss of the beloved. How much pain, what kind of pain, and the degree of the pain that is involved, the loss of the beloved. Now, because I think, because I distinguish romantic love in that two stages, the passionate stage from the more settled stage, I think, depending on the kind of love that you're talking about, some of those features may be present more so than others, right? And in the second edition of the book, which I, I don't think I addressed that in the first edition, but I really don't remember, the thing about G necessary features that is tricky is that if you have a G necessary property for love, all that that will tell you is that it's a G necessary property of love, right? It will not tell you whether that property is also shared with other forms of love. So for example, consider robust concern. Suppose we agree that robust concern is a G necessary feature of romantic love. All that that tells us is that in most cases of romantic love, robust concern is present, right? But it doesn't help us to distinguish romantic love from other forms of relationships. So if you talk about friendships, for example, clearly friendships have robust concern for one another, right? As a matter of fact, I would say friendships have more robust concern for the other than certain types of love, so certain forms of romantic love. So just to keep those points in mind. So yeah, let's talk about this notion of exclusivity. So it's sort of seen as generally the case that people in love are exclusively together and that there are only two of them, um, which is different from friendships. So if you had people who were friends who said, well, we are our only friends and we have no other friends beyond each other, you would think that that was incredibly peculiar and quite unhealthy. Absolutely. Now, I gather that there's sort of a, a more recent move towards embracing, let's say, a polyamorous lifestyle where people you know, love more than just their one partner and there could be various permutations of that. South Africa is interesting in that um, we legally recognize some forms of polyamorous marriage. So in African customary law, a man can marry multiple women. And there is a move to allow a Muslim man to marry up to four uh, wives. 
but there's no general rule which allows it for all citizens. So if you're a woman who would like multiple husbands, you cannot, or a woman who would like multiple wives, you cannot. Um, but we have some legal recognition for this because there's sort of a, a cultural history of it in South Africa. So can we make sense um, of polyamory? Uh, is it something that's, that, that's consistent with our, the other features of love? Or are those people mistaken? Are they engaged in some sort of delusion about love? Um, I don't, I don't, I think we can make sense of polyamory. I don't think people who talk about polyamory are delusional at all. Of course, polyamory, as you said, Mark, there are different iterations of it. So for instance, when you, typically when you talk about um, legal polyamorous marriages, they are typically where one man, for example, is married to say three women and the three women are not married to each other, right? So in addition to the fact that marriage is a legal arrangement in many ways, typically polyamorous relationship might involve the three people all with each other. So they all live together, they all love each other. Um, that's the usual, that's the core kind of case of polyamory. Now, there have been, I don't think there are any good arguments for the notion of ex exclusivity. Um, one argument, so there are some sort of arguments that are practical considerations, like for example, somebody will say, look, um, unlike friendship, so somebody says with friendship, you, the notion of exclusivity is silly because if, if somebody says you can only have one friend, people will balk at that, obviously, and for, for good reasons. The thing with friendship, though, as it is understood, say, on certain models, like the, like the I want to say the West, but it's not just the West. I think friendship like this is almost pretty much culturally common. Uh, friends do not usually cohabit with each other. You know, they are not responsible primarily for each other. They don't usually cook for each other meals. You know, they, they typically live separate lives for each other. Uh, I mean, not on a daily basis. I mean, of course, you can invite friends over for a meal, but, you know, whereas with love slash marriage, you expect that kind of thing, right? So that right then and there, that sort of, that introduces practical logistical problems with polyamory because you're like, well, you know, I, I can barely, between my job and my adopted kitten, I can barely pay attention to one person, let alone to, let alone to two people. So that raises, you know. Of course, polyamorists come back and say, well, look, if you are in a polyamorous relationship, you just spread the amount of work, basically. So it's not like you have to do everything for everyone. So that argument is not necessarily right. Now, I'm running off the mouth here, but one important thing that we have to keep in mind in the distinction is between polyamory as a relationship and polyamory as an emotion, right? So when we talk about love, sometimes people run together, love as what I feel towards a person, um, my attitude towards that person, my level of anxiety when I'm not in the presence in that, with that person, how much I long to be with that person, et cetera, et cetera. And those cases are, case, are cases of love and they could very well be unrequited for example, right? So one question about exclusivity and love is, can it arise at the level of the emotion? Can you love, can you feel that kind of thing, whatever it is that is love, can you feel it towards more than one person, right? Um, and that's, of course, in many ways, is a psychological question, right? So if you raise it as a psychological question, I don't think there are very good arguments to show that it's impossible. As a matter of fact, you can rely on say the model of friendship or the model of parent love. I mean, if parents are able to love, have that attitude towards their children, uh, towards more than one child, there seems to be no conceptual bar, uh, no conceptual obstacle as to why one person cannot 
romantically love more than one another person. Whether psychologically that frequently happens is of course an empirical question, it's a different question. But conceptually, there seems to be no bar. One piece of evidence that it does happen is that people do seem to fall in love, if not simultaneously with two people. Um, so you fall in love with one person after you've been with them for about a year or so, two years, three years, five years if you're lucky, right? Your eye starts to wander. You know, and you start looking for something new, you know, and then on the one hand, you find yourself in this psychological, uh, not dilemma, but in this psychological situation where you are with someone whom you love dearly and you wouldn't even dream of abandoning him for someone else, right? But on the other hand, you meet someone at work, at a party or something like that, and you find yourself flirting with that person, really wanting to be with that person, you talk to that person. So you realize that psychologically, you are actually able to be in some sort of, or to feel some kind of love for that person, uh, while at the same time you are in love with your spouse. They might feel differently, and it could be that the love you feel later is more what I would call uh, RL1 as opposed to RL2, but hey, they're both love, and so they can, it seems that psychologically it's also possible. And we have to remember also that what people are psychologically able to feel is often a function of what culturally is expected of them, and what they have been raised to believe, what they have been raised to think, et cetera, et cetera. So if you conduct another thought experiment, you can say, well, imagine a society, it requires its members as parents to love more than one child. It requires its members as uh, friends to love more than one friend, but it also requires its members as lovers to love more than one person. So if we can think of such a society, is it really conceptually that hard to imagine that People in that society are, fall in love or are in love with more than one person. Now, we don't have to go crazy for polyamory. You don't have to be in love with 50 people, right? I mean, not even friendship is like that. Friendship is usually, I mean, especially if you're, if you're not talking about Facebook friends, if we're talking about, you know, real friendship, usually you have about three or four, five, six, seven close friends, basically. So we don't have to go nuts with the number. Um, so it seems conceptually possible with love also. And psychologically, it will depend on the actual social configuration and the individual situation of each person it's so it's so hard to to say what i'm about to say because i have so many questions like like a dozen um <laughs> but, but okay so, so Calm down. Gonna... just don't get hysterical as we <laughs> 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 it's such a fascinating topic, uh, partly because I'm polyamorous. So I find it very, very interesting to hear it within a philosophical frame. Uh, it's very exciting to hear it talked about in those terms. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so let me think about what the monogamous objection would be to the psychological possibility of, of love, um, of polyamorous love. So, so the monogamous objection would go something like this. It's not real love, they'll say, okay? So they'll say, um, you can't compare the love that you feel for multiple people, um, the love that you feel in each instance, to, to the love that a long-term monogamous partnership has over decades and decades and decades. How could you possibly compare those? They seem like totally different phenomena, and the monogamous one is real, versus the polyamorous one is not. I'm worried a little bit about this objection because I think this objection might be actually begging the question in a sense, because it seems to assume that the monogamous one is the real one. I mean, my response to the objection would just be simply to say that I would agree that the long-term relationship love has and should have a certain primacy to it, right? Uh, so I would describe it in that way. 
um, it should be given some sort of priority. It should, you know, um, it's primary in a way that the other one is not, basically. But I wouldn't describe it as being, as, as the other one as being unreal or less real than the, than the monogamous one. So maybe the word real here is tripping me up a little bit. And if the objector insists on using the word real to describe the difference between them, then my response would be that you are, that they are begging the question because they're assuming that there has to be a monogamous love. And it is that assumption that's making them insist on the use of the word real to describe it, whereas everything else is just fluff. As opposed, whereas I have given them the option to use a different concept by saying, well, maybe we can say that this one has more priority. This one takes moral priority, uh, um, psychological priority, temporal priority, even you ought to divide your time fairly in such a way that you give more time to that partner than to the newfound love, right? But if the objector continues to refuse to use those concepts to describe the case, then I can only say they're begging the question by assuming that it's, that it's real. So there's a very interesting, um, there's a very interesting uh, argument that was raised in, I think it was the 50s by Gellner, um, I like to call it Gellner's paradox. Um, Alan Kobel, I think, discusses it in his book. I don't remember it. Yes, I don't yes, what yes, he does. Yes. Refresh my memory, please. Yes, go ahead. Okay, well, I'm, I'm kind of trying to refresh my own memory, but basically the argument goes as follows. And his conclusion, uh, he comes to one conclusion, and his conclusion is that love is impossible or that love doesn't exist. Um, and the alternative conclusion you could use from the same premises is that love is necessarily polyamorous. Okay, so, so this is how the argument goes. So it goes, well, either love is something you have because in virtue of the person, the beloved's properties, in other words, features of the object, or, or I, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, of, of very similar types of arguments, or, or, it's a, or it's because you love the person in and of themselves, so kind of their substance, um, but not because of some feature they have. So it's one or the other, right? So Sobel, I think, calls the, uh, the first view the reason view, and yep. the, second, the second view the substance view or the person view. Um, and, and he says, well, Gellner says, well, okay, if what you care about is, uh, is real love, then we should dismiss the person view because it seems irrational. There's no reasons why you would love the person because you, as soon as you love a person for a reason, you're loving them for a property, right? For one of their features. And he says, well, real love or, or love that's valuable can't be irrational. So he dismisses the substance view or the person view. And so he switches to the reason view and he says, okay, but hold on. If you love someone because of their reasons, well, then it seems like someone else could come along with the same features that you fell in love with the first time around. And, and, and we think that, well, if you were to love that other person as well, well, then that's not real love. And so love, love is not exclusive, but then it's not real love because we think the love is exclusive. And so love doesn't exist. Right. Um, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, no, well, I mean, that's it. That, that's the conclusion that, that Gellner re reaches, right? That love doesn't exist. Um, the alternative would be that love is polyamorous, or perhaps there's some way of working towards specific reasons rather than reasons that could be shared amongst different people. I mean, Gellner's paradox, right? Of course, it's, it's going to basically make, give heart attacks, multiple heart attacks to people who believe in the exclusivity of love, in the uniqueness of the beloved and all of these things. I mean, I don't want to repeat the paradox you said, but it is a famous, it's a famous issue in the philosophy of love, which is that 
do we love someone? And it was raised, of course, a version of it was raised in Plato's Euthyphro about, you know, whether, why, we believe, why we love God, basically. Why, why we do the right things. Is it because God commands us to do it? Or, do, you know, or does God has command us to do it because they're the right things? So it's the same thing. It's something similar here. You know, do I love X because of the properties that X has? Or do I find the properties that X has valuable because I love X? Which comes first, the cart or the horse? And each position, of course, has its problems. Um, you, so if, we, if you go to the property-based view of love or the reason-based view of love, the, it raises a lot. So, and, we, and I know our topic is exclusivity, but I just want to give you a flavor of some of the issues that it raises. Suppose, for example, I love um, Mario Lopez. That's not who I think of. But suppose I, I'm in love with Mario Lopez because he's handsome and because he's witty. All right. Of course, I'm going to love him for way more reasons than that. But just to simplify the case, let's suppose these are the two reasons, right? So the reason-based view of love basically says that if someone else comes along who's handsome and witty, I would be irrational not to love that person. So I would be accused of some sort of irrationality if I don't love that person, right? Um, not only that, if another person comes along who's more handsome, and more witty than Mario Lopez, then the reason-based love gives me reason to abandon Mario Lopez and go on to that person. And not only that, the reason-based love, unless I am quirky or I'm just, I'm weird, the reason-based love gives you, Jason, as much of a reason to love Mario Lopez as I do, because supposedly the properties that Mario Lopez has are worthy properties on which to, on the basis of which you can fall in love with someone. So the reason-based view has raises a lot of interesting philosophical puzzles. Of course, the one that we're concerned with is exclusivity. And what it does is that it blows exclusivity out of the, out of the, out of the window, basically, because it says that reason-based love means that any person whom you love based on certain properties, it would be irrational for you not to love anybody else who has those same properties. So in that respect, love is not exclusive. But, but here's one thing. What that does is that it pulls the conceptual rug from under the exclusivity of love. It doesn't pull necessarily the psychological rug, right? So somebody can say, look, you're right, conceptually speaking, and, and by the way, there's a lot more to discuss with this view. I'll just mention one little thing after I finish this thought. So one can say, look, you're right, conceptually speaking, I absolutely have no reason not to love more, not to, not to love only Mario Lopez, right? I have every good reason to love other people other than Mario Lopez. But psychologically speaking, look, I just can't pull it off. I, I love reading Mario. May, give me a couple of years, maybe I'll change my mind. But for now, I just love only Mario, basically. So I wonder if the, if the polyamorist has this very fundamentally different view about love, which, and I, and I want to say that polyamory sort of seems like a broad church and there's different ways in which people could rig it. And you know, one of the ways you've described is they've got a primary partner, let's say who they love in a, the, the way that monogamous people love each other and then these other third or fourth parties into the relationship. Um, but let's think about it differently. You could have a situation where the polyamorous says, no, I love the concept of polyamory. And really it's in the same way that I love the concept of thesis's ship. And the particular planks on that ship can be replaced. But I'm in love with the idea. Um, and so there is no primary person. There is just the structure. And so at any one time, I see five people. And those people might fall out, like planks in the ship or, or limbs on someone that are being replaced by new limbs. Um, but that entity is one entity. And when I say that, you know, I love my partners, it might not be the specific partners that matter. It's the structure of the partners. And you might even think that behind that is some sort of, let's say, abstract love of a range of properties. 
So they might say, look, I'm a very demanding person. I don't just love, you know, the witty and the kind, you know, I also like, you know, the eccentric and the creative and they list the whole range of properties. And they say, it's very hard to find that in, in one person, but my partners fulfill that very well. Um, and so when a creative drops out, we find a new creative that can fill that role. It makes polyamory sound like it's so, sort of a disposition, basically. So typically people have a disposition to fall in love with one person and then they fall out of love and then they go to the other person. So the disposition is to love people monogamously, but serially, right? Whereas polyamory is the disposition to love people uh, synchronically at the same time, more than one person at the same time. Um, in which case, the issue here isn't so much conceptual because we're not worried about the, whether love is conceptually exclusive or not. The issue here might be more to what extent do people have this kind of disposition, basically? To what extent do people have the disposition to fall in love in this polyamorous way? And I think um, it, it will depend on the individual, it will depend on the society, it will depend on a number of things. But I see no reason why, I, I see no good reason why to say that it is impossible for people to have such, such a disposition, to love more than one person at some time. And you sort of supplied an argument yourself. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the concept of friendship, we people, we as individuals, are disposed to have more than one friend, and we're often disposed to have more one friend, more than one friend, for various reasons. By which I mean, we are attracted to different friends because of the different properties that they have. So, for example, one of my best friends, um, I can be very close to her because we both have the same values. We love animals. We're diehard vegetarians, almost vegan, both of us, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But she is a total prude about sex. Like, I can never make a joke, like a sexual joke in front of her, and she will, like, slap me on the hand. That's not feminist of you, Raja, right? I will get immediate on it. Whereas I have another female friend who's very body. I mean, she loves a sexual joke, right? I can send her like gang-banging jokes and she would just, her sides would split, right? And so I would have a certain level of comfort and I enjoy the company of the second friend in a way that I don't enjoy the company of my other friend. But my second friend has no problem buying an entire roasted chicken from KFC, which will basically make my heart go to pieces when I see that. And I do not want to be with her, let alone watch her take the flesh off the bones of this carcass, basically, right? So people can be attracted to different friends for different reasons, and I don't see why being in love cannot be similar in this respect. We can love different people based on the different properties. It would still not be exclusivity uh, because you are falling in love with different people, but um, we're not here criticizing the doctrine of exclusivity using the reason-based view. We are just basically giving another way to see why love is not exclusive. So, so far we've discussed uh, the conceptual problems around love. So what is love? What are its, its necessary conditions or generally necessary conditions, specifically looking at exclusivity? I think it might be quite interesting because you've kind of hinted at it so far is what are the moral aspects of all of this? So, so far we've just been trying to define love, um, but some very interesting questions around are all forms of love equally morally good is is love generally good is it is it obligatory must we fall in love in order to live a good life um or is it bad um some people take that view as well um what do you what do you think about the morality of I love think, i take that view i hate love i hate it i think it's paralyzing i think depend i really do i mean i 
um, I'm in love right now. I'm married, you know, there's the ring on my finger, but, um, and he's not here, so he can't hear me say that. Thank God. I'll make sure he's not going to watch this video. <laughs> um, but love makes me absolutely anxious. It makes me, it makes me, it, it, um, this is not to turn it about me, but I'm trying to say is that some people don't handle love very well. It could, to them, it could be psychologically debilitating. And there are people, and I think Robert Nozick said this in one of his essay, uh, in his essay on love, where he basically said, look, there are some people I, I just cannot see being in love. He mentioned uh, Jesus Christ. He mentioned, uh, you know, people who like dedicate themselves to some sort of cause on a, on a, on a worldview, basically on a global scale. Um, they're not going to have time to be in love and they don't probably want to be in love because they want to be able to be free to pursue these things. But to go back to your original point, um, I think love does raise a ton of moral questions, and you mentioned some of them. Um, so, you know, it raises the question of whether love is, is morally obligatory. Of course, we're talking about romantic love, not like other types of love. It raises the question whether it is morally obligatory. If it's not, whether it's a good thing to have love in your life, right? Uh, whether love, whether morality puts any restrictions on love and how you conduct yourself when you are in love. Um, there are also questions, so if you go back to the reason-based view, for instance, there are moral questions seep into that area also, because while I'm in love with Mario Lopez because he's handsome, right, um, somebody might say to me, well, look, I mean, might you want to consider some moral reasons for loving someone as opposed to just, you know, the way they look, because that's going to go away after a while, you know. <laughs> um, and there is also another question, that, another moral question that love raises is a question of values. So, for example, and I think I give an, an example of this in the, in the book here. Um, if I am, for example, a committed vegetarian, right, and I am a vegetarian not because of health reasons, because I care about my health. I don't care about my health. I'm a vegetarian because of the sake of the animals, right? And then I meet someone who's a dedicated hunter or who's someone who's like, yeah, I need my steak and potatoes, man, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> what am I going to do? I mean, suppose I'm smitten, right? The guy is like hunky-dory or whatever, and I'm smitten with that person. Uh, does, does morality tell me, hey, Raja, put the brakes on this because this is not, not only is it not going to work practically speaking, but you also have to think about your own virtues in this respect, your integrity, your, uh, your commitment to certain moral ideals. I mean, what are you saying when you fall in love with someone like that? What are you saying when you fall with someone who's a, who's a neo-Nazi, who is a, you know, I mean, you, you, we can have a laundry list of examples of people that are morally uh, compromised, to put it that way. So yes, love raises tons of questions about morality. And I've just made a list, basically. So, One of the very interesting questions that that then raises is when you fall in love with someone, assuming the reason view, so you fall in love with someone based on certain properties or features that they have, um, so you fall in love for specific reasons, does that mean that you, have, that you love the whole person or do you only love those particular features of them? Yeah, that's a really difficult question. <laughs> that's, so the reason-based view, strictly speaking, is about, so there's an important distinction to make between the basis of love and the object of love, right? Um, so the basis of love are the reasons why you love someone. So for example, I might love, um, I might love Mario Lopez because he's witty and he's handsome, right? But I do not love necessarily or only his handsomeness and his wittiness. That might not even make a lot of sense. What I do love is Mario Lopez. Now, 
do I love every part of him? I mean, do I, you know, I, but then you have a question about what it means to love Mario Lopez. What is that? Who is this thing that I'm, I'm in love with when I say to Mario Lopez? And of course, that's going to take you into some heavy duty metaphysical questions about personhood, essences. Uh, so it can, it can get pretty complicated. Um, and one, one, one complicating question here is whether if Mario has some properties that I don't like, right? Some um, immoral properties, right? So he, he loves going hunting and, and maybe tortures the animals before he eats them, right? But otherwise he's lovely, otherwise he's great and you love exactly. his other qualities, yeah. Exactly, if I set those qualities aside and just and love him despite those qualities and if I do that, what does they say about me as a, as a moral person, right? So yeah, there are, there are some difficult questions. I, I, I don't have the answers to that. Um, I do know that supposedly when you love someone, when you genuinely love someone, you are supposed to look beyond or set aside certain negative properties about them that, they, that you might not like or that you might disagree with. And here you're going to have, um, there's going to be some sort of, a, there's probably going to be some sort of a, a division between properties that are morally trivial or that are morally irrelevant, for example, and properties that are morally important. Um, and so that the morally important ones will act like will act as red lines to the love. Now, someone might say, well, morality isn't everything, in which case we have a whole new game on our hands, of course. But, um, but you can make that distinction. So you could have that second case where you say you love the person and then whatever properties they have, you love because they are attributes that person has. And so you could imagine someone saying, no, I don't love him despite the fact that he beats up small children. I love him because of that, you know, um, and, you know, he does all these things, um, you know, like pulling off the nails of, uh, you know, um, small kittens before devouring them whole, you know, and it's just, it's amazing. I love him because of it, you know, we would start to think there might be a, a, a problem there with um, the things that you love, but it might very well be true that you love them. Um, you can imagine someone who loves um, sinister types, you know, they feel all that reflection, all that regard, all the things that are on that list, the strong desire, maybe they're propelled by it. Um, the other kind of love that might be interesting is that there's a line between attraction and repulsion. So, you know, the nature of sex as well sort of involves something, you know, deeply comical and, you know, partly repulsive. And I wonder if it might be too hard to love a saint. You know, you look at Mother Teresa to say that you have sexual desire for Mother Teresa seems a bit incongruous because she's, she's too holy. She's too grand and wonderful and perfect. Um, but you can love someone who's got maybe a bit of an edge to them, who is imperfect, um, you know, that we can sort of, and maybe the little repellent bits inside of them um, are what draws you in closer. Yeah, that's interesting. I, the, uh, the, um, so, so there are two parts to what, to, to what you mentioned, Mark. One part is about loving someone on the basis of bad properties, right? Um, so the, the kitten torturer, let's say. Um, so here, cases like this are, of course, harder to come by. And in order to make that case, you have to make it as coherent as possible. But you can, you can easily think of an example of someone, for example, I, I don't know, who thinks that morality is overrated, right? And he looks around him and all he sees are people who conform to morality. And he's bored by that, some sort of, a, some sort of eccentric esthete, right? Who wants to see the world have as diversity of things as possible. And then he meets this guy or this woman who tortures kittens and enjoys it and then she 
devours them whole, as, as you said. And he's like, oh my God, I just found the love of my life. Where have you been all my life? You know, <laughs> saying that. And he is, he's absolutely smitten. He's in awe. And you were like, you're sexy to boot also. You know, like, how am I to have <laughs> So if you make <laughs> if you make that case, if you make it coherent, then yes, absolutely, you can have you can have a coherent possible case like this. And the only thing we can say about this is that the the, the love is um, is the love is immoral in multiple aspects. One aspect being that the basis of the love seem to be immoral properties. Uh, the, the person is in love with the other person on the basis of her ability uh, of torturing kittens. So so that's one thing to to say about that. The Mother Teresa example um, is interesting because people have often been attracted to people that they think are too holy. Um, and the reasons of the attraction, if we talk about sexual desire, for example, and the reasons of the attraction have been, um, have, are, are various. One reason is because you think that person is holy, um, you feel that, you would, that, you're, that they're unattainable. And you know, we often desire the unattainable, right? Um, and if you look at the history of um, certain tra religious traditions that are uh, not monastic, but they are um, mystical in some ways, you find certain cases of longing for saints. And even within Christianity, you have this longing for Christ, for the Lord, for the Lord. I mean, you read some of the St. Teresa of Avila, for example, and you say to yourself, is this woman having an orgasm? I mean, what's going on there? And of course, it's in the way she, she, she praises uh, and she, she longs to be with, with, with God, basically. And so, you know, and this, I'm not, of course, I'm not the, person, the first person to comment on this. I mean, there's a ton written on religious ecstasy and how sexual it can be and all of this stuff. But there's also another reason why sometimes we, we which are perverse, but there are also re, um, sexual reasons for, desiring those that are seen as perfect, it's because you want to bring them down, basically. You want to show them, you want to show them that, you want to show that they are at core corrupt or that they can be corrupted. The famous, the famous novel, the, uh, Dangerous uh, Liaisons, um, is, illustrates this point where you have this guy, I can't remember those French names, but you have this guy who, ha who makes a bet that he is going to seduce a very virtuous woman, basically. Um, he makes a bet with his other woman friend. And of course, there's tons of jealousy going on, et cetera, et cetera. But he's sexually attracted to the virtuous woman and his sexual attraction to her increases the more she resists him and the more he realizes how stolid she is on the inside as far as virtue is concerned. So it's not, to him, it doesn't become just a question of a challenge where God damn it to hell, I'm going to bring you down. But he actually desires her sexually more and more, the more he sees how virtuous she is. And of course, he ends up seducing her. And then he basically just dumps her because he, he got what he wanted. But so, so we do often sexually desire those that we think are holy or perfect. And I've given like two reasons for that. There probably are more of that. So the reason-based love, uh, the reason-based view of love is not going to deny that the reasons can be diverse in terms of which, on the basis of which people fall in love with other people. And so it will readily admit bad, uh, morally bad properties on the basis of which people can fall in love because the reason-based love is not a moral view. It's, a, it's, a, it's somewhat of a metaphysical view or a, it's a metaphysical view about why people fall in love or, or giving an account of the, of, of love, of an explanation of love. Uh, so it will not deny those properties. Um, 
the people who are going, the philosophers who are going to deny those properties are philosophers who are basically going to restrict love in, a, in some, in ways that are moral, basically, who are going to basically say, you cannot have genuine love if the love is somehow not moral in some way. But even those philosophers, um, I think they will have to say, they will have to admit the conceptual possibility that some people can fall in love on the basis of bad moral properties. They're just going to have to evaluate that love differently. But they might also go on to say that if you look at the example of the kitten torturer and the person who loves her, if they genuinely love each other, even, even though the, ba the basis on which they love each other is morally bad, if they do love each other, they're going to exhibit some sort of concern for each other, for the sake of each other, basically. Right? So they're going to limit love morally in that way. If not the basis of love, they will limit it in the kind of concern that the lovers show, each, show for each other. No genuine concern, no love. So you, you've given a few reasons in our discussion why love could be bad. Um, and, and, and one which seems why love could kind of inherently be good, fundamentally be good, which is that it involves concern. Um, I, I'm wondering all things being equal. So kind of the average two people loving each other, um, the average mix of good and bad qualities in each, um, you know, of course these people don't really exist, but hypothetically, so all things being equal, is love a good thing? Uh, for humanity at large or for the individuals in love? I think both are good questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a tough one. Okay, so um, <laughs> it's good for humanity at large because it keeps people off the streets, basically. You know, um, it keeps them. Uh, I mean, I know this sounds cynical, but I think to some extent it's a little bit true. I think it gives people, it allows people, look, if the good thing about love, whether it is romantic love or friendship love, is that it provides human beings with meaning to their lives. If, if we face the fact that, and I, and I think it is a fact, if we face the fact that most human beings are at best average in terms of their moral abilities, right? If we face the fact that most human beings tend to be indulgent, self-absorbed, selfish, looking after number one, petty, arrogant, vicious in so, so many ways, I don't need to go on, right? If we face that fact, then love cannot but be a good thing in general, on average. Because when you love someone, be it romantically or friendship-wise, you are basically going to be psychologically forced to take care of that person. Um, not in the sense that the, the person is physically incapacitated and they need like hospice or home care or something like this, but in the sense that here you have someone for whom, for whose sake, and not for your sake, but for whose sake you're going to do a lot of things, uh, they're going to motivate you in a number of ways. They're probably going to want you to be a better person. I know this is a cliche, but I think it's true because most lovers do not want to look bad in the eyes of their beloveds even if their version of what it means to look bad or good is, it might be skewed a little bit, right? And it provides people with, um, with a, most people are not, are not volunteering at shelters. Most people are not devoting their time to fight climate change. Most people are not taking care of the homeless, 
taking care of animals. Most people are taking care of themselves, right? So the nice thing about love, and this is something that Troy Jollymore uh, gives, makes in his book, Love's Vision, although I think he takes it, he goes nuts with it a little bit. But the, what's, good, the thing about, what's good about love is that it takes us out of our selfishness in, in many ways. It makes us focus some of our attention on another person, right? Now, of course, the problem with that is that, you know, some people who are in love and who are otherwise not that morally great, might just not give a shit about anybody else, basically. Oh, I love this person and I'm gonna devote my time to that, my per to that person, my children and my work, basically, and my mother if she's lucky, right? So that's basic. So, but at least, at least it takes, it makes you focus on another person. So it, it, it makes us a little bit more humane in so many ways. So I think in general, love is a good thing. Individually, I do not know. I think it will depend on the person. I think for some people being in love is a disaster, right? But for the majority of people, I think they're perfectly fine having love in their lives. I'd like to think about two kinds of non-reciprocal love. So the first is the unrequited love, where someone is deeply in love with someone else, but the other person doesn't feel that way. They don't, um, they don't feel love for, for the, the person who desires them. And the other one is a person who desires things that cannot love. So you can imagine someone who's in love with a fictional character, um, so they love Holden Caulfield. Um, or someone who loves the Brooklyn Bridge. You have people who are in love with objects. Um, and maybe one of the extreme cases would be, let's say, someone who uh, loves a dolphin. Um, there's a famous um, essay written about uh, how to seduce dolphins onto the shore. Um, what are we to make of those sorts of situations of love? Is, does love require some level of give and take and reciprocity? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I think there is a... <sighs> I think there's a fundamental difference between the case of the unrequited love and the case, the other cases that you are, that you have mentioned. I do want to point out though, that I, I'd like to distinguish somewhat sharply between sex and love, right? So the dolphin case seems to be more sexual than it is love. However, I do hasten to add that I've been reading a lot. Oh my God, this is going to be probably, okay. I've been reading a lot on zoophilia and it's fascinating. It's fascinating because when you read, so this is, I'm not digressing. I'll tell you why in a second. When you read what a lot of zoophiles have to say, to many of them, um, they think that being with another animal, and typically the animals are either horses or dogs. Basically, these are the two primary ones. You get some farm, more other like goats and sheep. Um, and the reason, a lot of, the main reason that zoophiles often give in wanting to be with animals is that in addition to the fact that they find themselves almost exclusively sexually attracted to animals and not to other human beings, they also find the kind of companionship with animals very fulfilling, basically. So to a lot of zoophiles, and I'm not defending zoophilia, I'm just saying what they are. So to a lot of zoophiles, um, they have relationships with their pets, with their dogs, for example, with the German Shepherd. And to them, it's not just sexual, it's also romantic in many, many ways. And that goes to the second part of your question, because there, I think some zoophiles would say there is an important difference between being in love with, say, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge, as you said, or being in love with Raven. I used to have a crush on Raven from the New Teen Titans from DC Comics. I don't know if you guys like to read comic books, but I used to have a massive crush on Raven. She was an empath and she would hug people and take out all their sorrows and, and drown them in her empathy. And then the person would just be left exhausted, just be left exhausted. And I thought that she was so cool and I kind of had a crush on her, you know? Um, so the Brooklyn Bridge, a, 
a, a fictional character on the one hand, or it's somewhat different from an animal, loving you back. Animals, um, animals do stick with us for better and for worse. My cat, Alif Armando, for example, rarely leaves my side. He's always willing. He always sleeps next to me. Um, he's very loyal to me. He puts his life in my hands when I take him to the vet, even though he's terrified to go to the vet. So there's a sense in which animals can reciprocate a certain amount of love that the Brooklyn Bridge obviously cannot, or your stamp collection cannot, basically, right? Um, now, someone, of course, can argue that granted all this, there is still something missing in those relationships because even though my cat or my dog can love me back in its, in its own way, um, can cry at my bedside if it feels that I'm sick or if I'm dead or whatnot, there is obviously a whole range of things that you cannot do with an animal as your love partner. You cannot have uh, interesting dinners together. And I say interesting because it's more than just your dog eating from his bowl and me eating from my plate, right? Um, you cannot go to the movies together. I mean, you can take walks, I suppose. You can, you can be out in nature together. But obviously there is a whole limited range of, 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 of activities that you're not going to be able to do together. Now, does this mean that the love that you have is not true love? I, I do not know the answer to that question. I think someone who says that this is not true love might be putting um, too many restrictions on what love is, conceptually speaking, basically. Now, is it moral love? That's a whole different question. I, I don't think it's moral and I, I don't know. I mean, it's complicated, but is it love? Um, so consider two cases. S suppose you have two people, um, I'll talk about the Brooklyn Bridge in a second, but suppose you have two people, who, both of whom are in, um, in love with their dogs. Um, one of them, out of moral concerns, does not have sex with the dog, even though the dog wouldn't mind it. I mean, you, it's amazing what you read in the literature. Often the pets initiate the sexual act, actually. Once they get used to it and once they know what it's all about, they often initiate it themselves. But suppose in one case, the person doesn't have sex with their dog whatsoever, but loves the dog, would like to have sex with the dog, but says, I don't want to do anything, blah, blah, blah. So whatever the dog reciprocates is just normal dog love reciprocation. It's like between me and my cat, between any regular, you know. Another case, you have a person, a guy who's in love with his dog. They have sex. The dog is very intimate with the guy. The dog sometimes initiates the sexual acts. This happens, etc. Are both of these cases of being in love? I would say yes, they are both cases in being in love. Are they morally good cases of being in love? That's a different question. I, I don't, I, I, I have worries about those, about both of them, right? Um, in many ways. Um, so, and I don't know whether they are cases of love because there are cases of, um, because simply of what the person feels as opposed to because they are, because one of them involves reciprocation or not. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes you can be in love even if there is no reciprocation, basically. Um, Brooklyn Bridge, that's a tough one. But you can imagine, suppose you have someone who, um, I mean, I don't you know, these are philosophical discussions. They can go a little bit crazy. But imagine someone who is in love with the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay, not in love with the Brooklyn. Let's not describe the case this way. Imagine someone who goes to bed every night, say, 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 say she lives in New York, right? She goes to bed every night, 
not being able to wait until sunrise so she can go and stand on the Brooklyn Bridge, right? She wants to have all her meals while walking up and down the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, she, loves, she loves to drive around the Brooklyn Bridge. She wants to be in the presence of the Brooklyn Bridge all the time, right? Um, of course, the Brooklyn Bridge is weird because it's a bridge and it's huge, <laughs> you know, but you can come up with other cases in which people are just love, in love with their comic book collection. They, would, they, they always need to make sure that they're home, to check it's okay, to see it, to touch it, to smell the covers, uh, to look, to reread their favorite scenes or their favorite stories, etc., etc. I think these are cases of love. Um, they will have a lot of things that are not in common with other things of love, but I do not see a good reason why they are not. Um, because if you, if you argue that what is, whether someone is in love or not depends a lot on the person's feelings slash emotions slash attitude slash desires, then you can make a good case that all of these are cases of love uh, to varying degrees of intensity, to varying degrees of ability of reciprocation, um, definitely varying degrees of morality, but there is no reason to say that they are not, they are not cases of love. Okay, so I'm wondering whether someone who cares deeply about love as a phenomenon might take a very different tack to this. <clears throat> so on the one hand, you could have this very inclusive account of love, right? So you could say, well, love generally has these features. Some of the time, some of the features will be missing. Most of the time, most of the features are there. And this allows for many, many different types of love, including zoophilic love, including love of the bridge, including love of the, the kitten torturer, lots of different types of love. And another way that one might think about it is these phenomena seem so different to each other in such important ways, even though they do have certain similarities, they seem so different to each other in very important ways, fundamentally different ways or fundamentally important ways that maybe there just isn't love at all, not just in those exceptional cases, but in all cases, if we can't find an account of love in virtue of which there are certain elements common to all cases, maybe what's happening is there's just these different types of feelings, which, which kind of have certain similar threads, but nothing that occurs across all cases. And so there's just a range of human emotions, but there's no such thing as love as a phenomenon. So this would be like an eliminativist view of love, basically, right? Um, um, as opposed to a family resemblance approach of love. Exactly. Yeah. This is my concern with the family's resemblance view is that I, I just, not just for this, for this topic, but in general is that I worry, I say, okay, how many features within the family do you need? Right, um, exactly. And, the, and, it, and it's, and it seems arbitrary how many you need. And, you know, so, so that's why I want to say, okay, maybe it doesn't exist at all. Um, yeah. Right. Um, you're right. Then we would have, so if that position is viable, I'm going to suggest one thing that all forms of love do have in common in a minute. But if that position is viable, uh, then yeah, we wouldn't have a unitary view of love anymore. But I think what the position would not eliminate, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but, and you can correct me if I am, but what that position would not eliminate is that we, what we will have are various phenomena that we can perhaps, um, some of which is love, basically, but perhaps not all of it, but some of which is love. And we can decide on two or three features or four features that need to be present, even if not all of them, 
but that their presence would be sufficient to make it love. But I would like to suggest that I think a common feature of love is a certain kind of concern for the object of love. And so in human love, for example, it might take the form of concern for the well-being of the beloved, um, the, including the moral well-being of the beloved, that you want to make sure that they are a good person, even if you, what you think is a good person might be skewed again. Um, but, but this notion of preservation as opposed to destruction, I think is a common feature of loving and the loving attitude. Um, so, um, and it's a form of care. So consider the one who loves their comic books, the one who loves his dog, the one who loves the Brooklyn Bridge, the one who loves their partner, their human partner. I think the common thread to all of these loves is a certain amount of concern slash care slash inclination to preserve the object of love, to keep it intact, to even promote its well-being whenever that is possible. I think that's a thread that one can reasonably believe is common to all forms of love, by, by in virtue of which they can all be classified as love. And the absence of which um, you can raise doubts about whether what you, are, what, what you are witnessing is love or not. Now, it can get pretty complicated because people can show concern for other things, can wish to preserve other things uh, for various reasons, um, some of which are not very noble. So for example, I might wish to preserve, I might wish to promote the well-being of one of my colleagues because I know he's going to write me a letter of promotion, right? <laughs> or I could even enjoy my, one of my colleagues, enjoy his company, like him. Uh, this is not the real story, it's just a fiction example, you know, but because I know that he's going to write me a letter of promotion. Um, so of course, in that case, I am concerned for my colleague's well-being, but not for its own sake. So you can, you can up the ante a little bit and say that the common thread to all cases of love is not just the concern for the well-being or the caring for the preservation of the object of love, but it's also doing so from a particular reason, from a, from a particular motive, which is for its own sake. Um, that would be the common thread to all cases of love.